Why does God want us to wait until marriage to have sex? That actually is a, a great question. You know, it's a great question because um, some people would say if, if sex is such a, a vital part of a relationship and if uh, the, the Christian church says that you should wait until marriage to have sex, aren't you kind of setting yourself up for failure? What if you're not compatible? Wouldn't it be better just as like you test your communication skills, your compatibility skills that you would see if you're sexually compatible as well? And what would God's answer to that question be? Well, we know that God does want us to wait. So in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, a uh, passage I had to memorize when I was growing up as a kid, uh, the passage says, uh, Marriage should be honored by all. This is Hebrews 13.4. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So God wants us to keep the marriage bed pure. And perhaps some of God's reasons is the power that God's ascribed to sex. There's a movie I saw about a decade ago. I have no clue what it was about. It's called Vanilla Sky. Uh, I think Tom Cruise and uh, who else was in that movie? Cameron Diaz. And uh, they hook up afterwards and Tom Cruise just wants it to be sex with no strings attached. And Cameron Diaz says this classic line to him. She says, don't you know that when you make love to someone, your body makes a promise that you can't take back? It's almost like if you think sex is just something you do, no, God designed it to glue two people together. Uh, I've learned this in, in my work trying to help people escape addictions to pornography, that uh, the chemicals that are released in your brain during a sexual encounter are not just for pleasure, as if sex could really be with no strings attached, but it actually works to bond two people together. Uh, there's a chemical called oxytocin. Ever heard of that before? Uh, it's produced in a woman's body in mass amounts when she breastfeeds her baby, so there's this incredible bond between her and her child. Uh, the same chemical is released when two people uh, enjoy sex together. That They just have this incredible bond. This wasn't just something that we do for fun. This is something meant to cement the relationship. So when done right, God has meant sex to be something that doesn't just feel good for a husband and wife. It bonds them together in a good relationship until death do them part. But now think, what happens if we take sex outside of marriage? We end up bonding ourselves to someone who might not actually be good for us. This happens all the time, right? Uh, maybe a teenage girl, a girl in college, uh, could be any one of us. You, you hook up with someone and, you know, you're not sure of their character yet, if they're good for your soul, for your faith, for your future. And you end up just having this kind of cloudy thinking in your mind because you can't think straight anymore. The chemicals have clouded what God intended to be uh, this really simple decision of analyzing a relationship. We could add a, a thousand factors on top of that as well, huh? We think of uh, unwanted pregnancies, uh, how difficult it is to be a single parent and sometimes that happens when you least expect it. Uh, we think of people who feel pushed towards an abortion uh, because they're, they're pregnant and they're not ready and he's not ready. Uh, we think of sexually transmitted diseases. It, things get really, really complicated. And so when I teach couples about sex in my pre-marriage counseling, I almost always say this, that, that sex is like a fire. It's a really good thing that God invented. It's his idea, your body was God's invention, his body, her body was God's invention. But if that fire gets outside of the fireplace, the thing that can bring warmth into the family's home can also do a lot of destruction. And so God is a loving father. He says he does want us to wait to reserve that great gift of sex as his present given to husband and wife on their wedding night. We hear that we shouldn't be angry, that anger isn't a fruit of the spirit. But aren't there some things we should be angry about? i.e. injustices against people who can't defend themselves or things done in God's name that contradict the Bible. Crazy timing. This came up 
three days ago, I was teaching a lesson on Jesus in our Bible 101 class, and I was making the point that Jesus was perfect. So Hebrews 4.15 says, Jesus has been tempted in all the ways that you have, yet he did not sin. Or the passage I quoted before, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, so he never did anything wrong. And I'm just going through this. Jesus was sinless, but he died on the cross for our sins, and the person interrupted me in the class. And he said, wait, what about the time when Jesus flipped over the tables? Ever heard that story? <laughs> Jesus goes to church. Can you imagine if he came and he just grabbed the Christmas tree and he smashed it into the screen and he would say, well, dude, that's not, that's not very loving. I, I thought you were supposed to be loving to people. And, and the Bible's answer to that is this, that anger in and of itself is how God often feels. Um, read the stories of the Israelites in the book of Exodus and Numbers and God will often be angry because anger is not a sin. In fact, I would claim to you that if you don't get angry at times in life about the things that happen to people in this world, then that itself is a sin. If my little girl was up front here and you came and you spit in her face and you slapped her and I did not feel anger over that, how could I possibly be loving? If, if that didn't bother me when people were wronged and scarred and abused, when we hear just horrific stories or if you've been through something horrific yourself, to think that God is just shrugging his shoulder saying, huh, it's okay, I'll work it out. No, God, God is a great dad and he burns with anger. But here's the fine line. Uh, have you ever noticed when, when you're angry, you do things that are sinful? Like if, if I'm, this happens to me all the time when I hear these stories about like terrorists in Nigeria and they just abduct these girls and they force them into sex, slavery, and marriage. I, I get furious and angry and things come out of my mouth of what I hope happens to those people. Like, I, I should be angry about the injustice, but man, so often just like aggressive, vengeful stuff comes into my mind and my heart. And what the Bible says is that we should be angry when sin happens, but we should leave it to God's justice in the end. That our anger shouldn't lead us back into vengeance. And so if you're going through a divorce and, man, your soon-to-be ex is just treating you like garbage, there should be some anger in your heart, but you have to take a deep breath and leave it to God to take care of that. Um, he'll defend you. There will be a day of reckoning and justice and so we leave it just to him. There's this great passage to prove everything I'm saying in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, actually, in the original Greek, it's, it's a little bit stronger. The passage in, in your Bible should say something like this. Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say don't be angry. It says in your when you're angry, do not sin. In the original Greek, it actually says be angry, but don't sin. So when something is just, it, it's just wrong. It's evil. And I love the examples that are given here. People can't defend themselves. Children, things done in God's name that just makes God puke in his mouth. Someone stands up and they claim to represent him and they hurt people in a church. Uh, be angry about that, but, but don't sin. Stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves and then trust that one day when Jesus comes back, he will make all things right. Coexist is a very popular school of thought. What does God say about coexist? Ooh. Are you familiar with the theme? Have you seen the bumper sticker? Um, Coexist, I don't know a ton about the origins of the movement, um, but the, the word itself, they take all like the images from the major world religions. You know, the, the T in coexist is like the cross of Jesus Christ and the crescent moon, I think, of Islam. 
um, makes the, up the sea of coexist. And there's um, symbols from Judaism and from the Hindu religion. And part of it is I think there's all these, you know, holy wars. There's been Christians on crusades in the last 2,000 years who've killed Muslims. And there's Muslim extremists who are killing Christians. And there's Hindus who kill Buddhists and Buddhists who kill Hindus. And there's witch hunts in even American history where Christians are going after and drowning people who practice um, kind of new age spirituality and, and Wiccan religion. So I, I think a, a little bit of the coexist movement would be affirmed by the Bible that a Christian's job isn't to go on a hunt and persecute and hate and kill people who aren't Christians. That would kind of be weird, huh? Um, unfortunately, in the history of Christianity, terrible, terrible stuff like that has actually happened. But God does want us to, to coexist. Um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light shine so that people who don't believe might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Uh, Jesus loved his enemies. He gave up his life for them. Jesus said we, we shouldn't hate people and persecute those who persecute us. Instead, we should pray for them that they would see something really unique uh, in Christianity. So if you have a Muslim neighbor and you're a Christian, uh, I hope you're, you're the best neighbor that that neighbor has. We're going to coexist and we're going to live a life of patience and love. Now, the one spot maybe where that school of thought would not jive with Jesus' teachings is, is that if by coexist we mean that, that all religions are equal, um, Jesus just couldn't have it. Um, Jesus said in, in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and no one comes to the Father except through me. All other religions that rely on, on karma or on good deeds or, you know, Islam is when you die, Allah puts your good stuff here and your bad stuff here and it better be like this, otherwise you're condemned. Uh, Hindu has the teaching of karma, that you do enough good works so you can escape, um, you know, the cycle of bad reincarnation. Buddhism has the idea of nirvana, that if you're a good enough person and clear your mind from the evils of this world. So it's all about you. And Jesus knew that was a toxic way to view God. Um, you would always minimize the sins that you commit. You would always think too much of the good works that you do. So instead, he was insistent that the only way to actually get into the presence of God who's perfect and good is by grace, by pure gift. And so Jesus said, no, no, no. If you try to earn it, you don't get it. If you fall on your knees and confess your sin and reach out your hands to a merciful God, uh, you'll get more than you ever imagined. So if coexist says that Jesus was wrong, then Jesus doesn't value coexist. But should we be tolerant and loving of our neighbors no matter what they believe? Jesus' answer would be absolutely. How do you know that God is real? Uh, if you never wrestled with that, I'm not sure if you thought deeply about it, huh? Um, lots of us were raised just believing that there is a God, but God is unique in the fact that he is spirit. Uh, Jesus said that in John chapter 4, God is spirit. So you can't necessarily see him or talk to him. So what makes God different than all these other characters of fantasy, how do we know for sure? You know, the, the Bible would give two, if not three, really concrete answers to that question. Uh, the first would be in the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, it admits that God is invisible, but it, it says this. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So God would say, look at the complex world that we live in and you will see evidence that a God is real. Uh, sometimes this is called the watchmaker theory. You know, if you were walking through the woods and you saw a watch laying there in the ground, you would not assume, huh, the winds just blew enough times over the right angles and dirt assembled and there's a watch. 
You'd say, no, this is so complex, someone had to handcraft this. And Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 1, if you look at the world around us, if, uh, if you get pregnant and you see how this child develops and how beautiful and complex it is, if you study the forces of the universe and gravitational pulls and constants and gravity, if you see that the world, like life existing, is this crazy miracle that should never happen, it's so complex that the only logical thing to think is someone must have made this. There must be something bigger than people just like me. There must be a God. And the Bible's second answer to that question actually comes on the next page in my Bible, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, it says that people who didn't grow up with the Bible, maybe they've never read it, they somehow know this difference between right and wrong, uh, which is sometimes called the argument from uh, moral standards or moral absolutes. So if we would all agree that it is, it's wrong for me to walk up to someone here in the front row and punch them square in the face, the question would be, well, why would we all think that? Unless there was something wired in us by God himself. This is where people who don't believe in God get into all sorts of problems because they know that there's a difference between right and wrong. They'll call racism or the abuse of a child wrong. But if there is no God, then that's not wrong. That's just your, your opinion. But if there is a God, a God who created us, a God who loves what's good and he hates what's evil, then there would be this moral code embedded in our heart. So whether it's the argument from design in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the argument from our conscience in Romans 2, uh, verse 14, uh, or just the incredible things that God has done throughout history, as in the story of Jesus 2,000 years ago, uh, there's plenty of proof that uh, we're, not, we're not dumb for believing there's something more than just this world. Uh, there is a God who exists. Matthew 5, 48 says, Be perfect. How is it possible for us to be? Why would God say that when Jesus died for our sins, thereby proving our imperfection? It's kind of a famous verse. Jesus is preaching about loving people. Uh, in the context of Matthew 5, he says, you know, don't just be nice to the people who are nice to you. He says, doesn't everyone do that? doesn't matter what you believe. You could be a tax collector and you're nice to your tax collecting buddies. So he says, be like God. Uh, a perfect God sends rain on believers and unbelievers, those who love him and those who don't. And he concludes that little section by saying, therefore, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How is it possible for us to be? It is not. And the point is that instead of relying on ourselves, thinking, well, I'm, I'm good enough to make it to heaven on this ladder that I'm going to climb, we would just be driven to our knees and the law of God would just expose us like a mirror until we just cry out like, Jesus, if I'm going to be perfect, if I'm going to make it, you got to do this for me and you got to do all of it because I can't. And so these are the two great teachings uh, called the law and the gospel. Uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, No one will be righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Right? So passages like that make us think like, Oh my, I can't do this. Exactly. That instead of looking to yourself, you look up at Jesus on a cross where you're absolutely correct. He takes care of our imperfection. He makes us perfect in this great exchange. Um, have you rejoiced in that this week, by the way? I had a chance to teach in the Jesus lesson for Bible 101 that when God looks at one of his people, he sees perfection. You ever think about that? Like, if you trust in Jesus right now, when God looks at you, he says, dang, you're, you're patient and you're super kind. You're the perfect husband. How did you pull that off? 
You, you never miss church. Every time you went to church, you were just zoned in on every word that Pastor Mike was preaching. And every time you prayed, you never got distracted by the squirrels or the moving people. You just always thought about God. You know, God would say that and we'd be like, uh, like, I don't know if you got the files kind of mixed up there in heaven's accounting system, but that's the, that's the great news of Christianity, right? It's not that God just takes away your sins. All the perfect things that Jesus did go on to our account. So when God looks at us, he sees perfection and he opens his arm wide uh, to invite us into a perfect place like, like heaven.